get. The more we come to realize, you know what? Our parents were doing the best they could with what they had, with where they were. Absolutely. And that's a really sort of freeing, freeing thought, don't you think, Paula? Absolutely. At the end of the day, we are all human. We all have flaws. We all have mistakes. We all make mistakes. And I, I like to use the term that we are all perfectly imperfect because there's no such thing as the perfect person or perfect relationship. But how perfect can you be for each other? Because you have. This is Mike Bassett, and welcome to Legal Grounds, conversations on life, leadership, and law. About five years ago, our firm was defending a truck wreck that happened out in East Texas. The case was filed in federal court in the Eastern District. It wasn't the most complicated case we've ever worked on, but like a lot of cases that go to trial in our line of work, it always had the potential for what we in the industry call a nuclear verdict. That's because, shocker, most juries aren't fans of trucking companies. And it doesn't help that a huge share of the legal advertising market is geared towards our kind of work. Just think, if you've driven down a major highway in America, you've seen the billboards from plaintiff's attorneys asking you if you've been hit by an 18-wheeler and then promising their firm will get you the money you deserve. Now, in this particular case that was in federal court, and if you don't know anything about federal judges, well, all you need to know is that some of them, certainly not all, can be, let's just say, sticklers for the rules. This is a sort of mixed blessing for the lawyers who try cases in front of them, and this case was a perfect example of just that. Now, because most jurors don't have degrees in transportation engineering or highway safety, our firm relies on a lot of expert to help unpack the facts, the real nitty-gritty stuff, in the way that is digestible to the general public. And to do this, we have to timely designate our experts under the rules of federal procedure. And that's, well, that's where we drop the ball. Thanks to a simple scheduling error, our firm missed the deadline to designate our accident reconstruction expert. The first thing I did when I realized we had made a mistake was to call the client and tell them that we dropped the ball. Then I told them about our plan to fix the mistake, all at no cost to the client, of course. Then I had to drive all the way to Marshall, Texas to appear, hat in hand, before the federal district judge to ask him to allow us to late designate our experts. The judge allowed us to designate the expert, but with a catch. The court ruled that if they so wanted, the plaintiff's lawyers could designate a rebuttal expert in response to our late designation. Nothing unusual so far. But then the judge ordered us to pay the plaintiff's rebuttal expert should they choose to hire one. Well, they did hire one at a cost of over $25,000, which our firm had to pay. After all, we couldn't well ask the client to pay for our mistake. Now, let me be perfectly clear. That client would have had every right and pretty much every reason to fire us. And worst case, sue us if the case went south and we could not designate this expert. After all, we were handling more than 15 cases for them at the time. And any one of those cases alone had a lot of exposure. And while we covered the cost of this mistake, 
Every client knows there's a limit to the amount a firm can afford to lose on sloppy work. But instead of putting us out to pasture, that client remains a huge source of business for our firm. And that mistake, well, that mistake actually made our relationship with the client even stronger. And while I can't get inside this client's head and tell you exactly why they stuck it out with us, I can tell you a couple of things I suspect made this continued relationship possible. First, we fully owned our mistake. We didn't try to blame the judge. We didn't throw our scheduler under the bus. We didn't blame the plaintiff's attorney. And we certainly didn't complain. Second, we went to the client and told them. And when I say went, I mean I called them the same day we discovered the error and straight up told them that we had messed up. And finally, we went to the client with a plan to make it right. If you've listened to this show long enough, you know I'm a huge believer that ownership and vulnerability are cornerstones of a strong relationship. You know, I can't even tell you if we won, lost, or settled that case. And I doubt the client remembers it either. But my guess and my hope is that they remember how we handled things when they went south. Unfortunately, the longer I practice, the more I've come to realize that a lack of an intentional relationship is one of the most common points of failure between law firms and their clients. And here to help us unpack the concepts of relationships like these is my guest for this week, Paula Quincy. Paula is a workplace relationship expert, keynote speaker, and advocate for issues surrounding both mental health and gender-based violence. After discovering Imago Relationship Therapy in 2006, she began to shift from climbing the corporate ladder to stepping back and actually seeing how it was built. In 2009, she founded Attitude Communications, which aims to bring employees and leaders together so they can achieve a growth mindset in all areas of business. And this all starts with building lasting, trusting relationships. Paula has been a TEDx speaker who was sought out by companies big and small to facilitate and implement new strategies for finding balances in all areas, both inside and outside the office. She is also the author of two books, Embracing Conflict and her most recent book, Embracing No, which aims to help eliminate the guilt too often associated with self-care. And I couldn't be happier to have her on the program. Paula, welcome to Legal Ground. Hi, Mike. Thank you so much for that uh, warm welcome. Uh, I think I should get you to do all of my intros. That was simply amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so what do we do, Paula, in these relationships we have with people when we drop the ball? Not if, right? Not if, but when. What should we do? You know, I think it's about being honest and being transparent and putting your hand up and being accountable for your actions and saying I did this and I can only imagine or understand how this has impacted you and I take full responsibility and ownership what can I do to resolve that or repair it how can I find a way to rectify what's happened so that's what we should do and, and we're going to talk about why that's a good thing to do but why do so many of us not do that? <laughs> Very good question. I think a lot of us don't like to feel vulnerable in terms of owning up to I've made a mistake or I was wrong or I 
misunderstood you because we naturally get into a reactive defensive state when we are in a position where the relational space, so in other words, the space between two people is where the relationship lives. And how we show up for each other and how we interact and engage with each other through our filters, of course, because we all have filters, so our baggage, for example, creates the filters through which we engage with each other and how we communicate and how safe we feel. And when we feel unsafe or vulnerable, our natural defense mechanism is to fight, flee, or freeze. So that's what we do. So we become reactive or defensive in different ways. We either shut down and withdraw from the relationship and avoid conflict, or we can come out being perceived as being attacking and aggressive and fault-finding and criticizing and judging and all of those things. And I'm going to come back and unpack that because one of the things I want to talk about is it's a whole different dynamic between an interpersonal relationship. Let's say you and I are friends and we've known each other for years and I make a mistake. It is a whole different dynamic when you are my client or you are a source of business and I'm a vendor or I'm a partner with you and I have dropped the ball and I want to come back and circle around on that, okay? But one of the things we always like to start with, and I got out ahead of my skis, is we always like to ask our guests, you know, tell us about yourself, because I'm a true believer that if I want to know you, I just have to ask you, tell me about yourself, because I think we're the product of a lot of, of our history. So for the viewers who don't know anything about you, obviously, other than your very cool accent, <laughs> tell us about your upbringing. Thanks. I am... Um was born originally in, back in those days, Rhodesia, now called Zimbabwe. Um, and it was, it was a life-defining moment. So my mom died when I was seven years old, which, which was the first sort of traumatic event or experience for me that kind of, I guess I've blocked everything out before that because when, it, when I think about where did my life start or what's the first memory I have of childhood, that's it, you know, that was that first life-defining moment. And so as a result of that, we moved to South Africa, which is where I'm based now. I'm in Johannesburg, South Africa, and started off, you know, originally in the corporate field. So as I say, in my previous lifetime, I worked in corporate in financial services. I originally studied marketing and advertising. Um, I, I come from a family where I have three siblings. I have two brothers and a sister. And through my own personal journey, so back in 2006, I was in a six and a half year relationship that had hit rock bottom. We were going for therapy and our therapist referred us to Imago Relationship Therapy. And so we went away on this couple's retreat and I was just blown away at the impact that Imago had on me, helping me understand how our upbringing shapes and influences who we become and then how we forge relationships with other people, both personally and professionally. And there and then I decided I, I wanted to teach this stuff because life is too short for us to be miserable and unhappy, especially in our relationships, which should be our biggest source of support and nurturing and care, right? So that's where the journey started. I was still working corporate full-time. I was doing this part-time in the evenings and the weekends with the view that one day when I'd had enough of corporate, I'd step out of corporate and this would be my second career. And as you know, when you put things out there to the universe, it keeps throwing things in your way to test if you're really <laughs> serious about this. And in 2014, I left corporate to go into this full-time and, and this is where I am and, and what I love doing. So as you, as you look back when you were growing up, tell us about a couple of mentors 
or leaders in your life whose lessons you still recall today and live out in your life in what you're doing. Can you name a couple of those folks for us and tell us what it is they taught you? Sure, there are so many, both personally and professionally. So on a personal front, there is um, a couple who I met when I was 16 years old and they kind of became the parents that I never had, so to speak, because my mom died when I was young. So I never really had that experience of a mother-daughter relationship or a loving, nurturing home environment to grow up in, which partly contributed to me not being able to forge healthy relationships later on in my adult life. And why I ended up in therapy after the six and a half year relationship that hit rock bottom, right? Because I hadn't dealt with my baggage and my stuff. And they just taught me so much about what a, a warm, loving home and family environment can be like and should be like. And that, you know, it, it's perfectly normal to, to have those needs met. And then from a professional point of view, one of my very first managers back in the, in the banking financial industry um, I guess he saw a bit of potential in me and he pushed me to get a bursary, a study loan, to go and get my degree because money wasn't an option for university, so I didn't have a degree. And it was through his, his encouragement and that I, I studied part-time and I'm the first one in my family to have a degree based on his support and encouragement. Um, and after that, there's been a number, uh, one which is actually quite ironic. It was a manager that I had who actually taught me the kind of manager I don't want to be because of the impact that they had on the people around them. And, and it was just a toxic culture and environment. And I think we can learn a lot from those people because they teach us who we don't want to be. Absolutely. And, and there's been a number of others, and, and I right now as part of the work that I do and teach, I fully advocate to having mentors, whether it's formally or informally, because nowadays there are more options available to find mentors from a formal point of view in terms of mentoring forums and platforms out there in the professional world, but also informally, whether it's a colleague or someone else in the industry or someone from a personal point of view, because you can be mentored on so many different things. It's not just from a professional point of view. You can be mentored on a personal level as well, you know, how to be a better parent, how to be a better partner, just how to be a better person in general. You know, uh, when you were talking about that, that mentor, the boss you had in the financial industry who said, you know, saw something in you and encouraged you to get a loan and go to school, it makes me think that the huge impact that we can have on people's lives in a very positive way, when we take the time to get to know them and encourage them, because I think sometimes we all move so fast through our lives that, you know, what difference is it going to make? What difference am I going to make? And yet this one person encouraged you to do this. And it sounds like made a real difference. Absolutely. And I think, you know, correct what you said correctly is we're so busy on that hamster wheel of busy, busy, do, do, and so busy looking forward of all the things we have to do, we must do, we should do. We have to get to that we don't stop to look at who's looking up to us, who's being inspired by us, who are we motivating, and what message are we potentially giving them? Because we never stop to look backwards and go, who's looking up to us as a potential role model or example in their lives? You know, one of the things I've learned by making a lot of mistakes is as a leader, people watch what you do, and you may say or do something regarding somebody else but they are watching. 
And while you may not treat them in a certain way, if they see you treat somebody else in another way, my experience has been they think, okay, that is the way he or she will treat me in the same situation. Correct, and it starts in our homes as children because we mimic our parents' behavior. Whether we- Good or bad. Exactly, exactly. You know, whether, it, whether we mean to or not, it's sometimes, you know, uh, monkey see, monkey do. Do as I tell you, don't do as I do kind of thing. But whether you like it or not, your children are listening, observing, watching, and they end up mimicking your behavior. And when we're going to get back to the imago therapy that I think if, if we don't address our childhood issues or, you know, the way we were raised, I think that, um, I don't know, I think we continue to kick the can down the road. Most definitely. Now, so in considering your current role as a relationships expert and coach, did you always view yourself as a facilitator growing up? Were you sort of the peacemaker? or is that something that you grew into? It was something that I grew into, but I'd always had an interest in psychology. And I remember very clearly there was a time when I was standing in my bedroom with the school prospectus or the university prospectus as to, you know, if I was going to go and study. I had to choose my subjects before going down that path. And I remember having it open on the page that said social worker and psychologist. And so back then already, I, I had an interest in it and, and I guess wanting to help people, but it just, you know, university wasn't an option to get a degree to study those things. But it's funny how life has a plan of coming full circle, even if it isn't directly the way that you had originally thought it would be. But I think you're placed where you're meant to be and to be comfortable in owning that space. And you know, that brings up this thought or this concept I talk about a lot, and that is doing the deep work on ourselves, which unfortunately, I think uh, a lot of cultures, and at least in the United States, may view people as selfish who spend a lot of time working on themselves and doing that deep reflective work. Is that what you've seen as well? I think there are those people that are brave to do the work and they're willing to sit in that uncomfortable space. I think also there are those people that don't want to go there and that's because they're not ready to go there and that's okay. I've learned over the years that you can't force someone to be where they're not ready to be yet. True. That's a good one. So you get your degree in marketing communications and to me this is already sort of a relationship type of work that you're doing, maybe not intentionally because after all you know when you are in business it's my belief that it's all about creating and maintaining relationships um, so when you are in this business you're in the corporate world did you did you view business as a relationship based idea or more of a transactional you give us this in return we give you that Back when I was in corporate, it was definitely a transactional view. But since I've stepped out of corporate and, and with the work that I've done in terms of blending my own personal experience of uh, my personal journey, but then also being now that I'm on both sides of the coin, having been employed in corporate and now being outside and working with corporates and the feedback and insights that I'm getting. I think initially we all look at it as a transactional approach however the dynamics are different whereas the way that I approach it now is 
there's transaction and it's between employee and organization because that is a relationship in itself. There's also the relationship between organization and client and organization and vendor, which is a different kind of relationship. And it's transactional if you choose it to be. Or you can choose to have transformational relationships in all three of those areas. And it largely goes hand in hand with your corporate culture and your corporate value system. Would you agree, and this is just my thinking, it takes a hell of a lot of work and a lot of time to create those transformational relationships. And I think sometimes that may be the biggest roadblock to that happening. Definitely, because there's this perception that it's the warm and fuzzy stuff and we don't need that stuff. There's no place for it in corporates. However, it's the most critical, crucial component in your organizational recipe. If your people don't feel like they matter, if your people don't feel appreciated, if your people don't feel like you're, you have their best interests at heart, they are not going to bring the best versions of themselves to the workplace. People will go where they feel welcome, but people will stay where they feel valued. And that goes for any relationship, personal or professional. So if your people are not well, your business is not going to be well. So how well are you taking care of your people? Yeah, you know, a dear friend of mine, Mike Lee, had this saying that fast is slow and slow is fast with people. <laughs> that it takes a long time to to establish that trust. But once you have it, I think that you will find that, in, for instance, as an organization, people will go above and beyond. Absolutely, and that's where that trust factor that you spoke about is so crucial when the corporate culture and corporate environment feels safe enough that I can bring my true self to the workplace. I'm not constantly on guard or walking on eggshells or using a cover your ass mentality because you know if I don't watch my back, uh, there could be repercussions. Where we feel respected, where we feel heard, where we feel like I know my teammates have got my back. I know that my my boss, my manager, my leader um, has got me and it's a supportive environment that I can learn and grow at the same time. That's where people thrive, just like children thrive in the home environment. So this term quiet quitting that we keep reading about all the time, I kind of chuckle. I think people have been quiet quitting since people started working uh, back many, many, many years ago. And what I see is when people feel disengaged and they don't feel like they belong and they don't have a community, they may do their job. I mean, they may be technically proficient, but they have no skin in the game. Correct. And I agree. I think quiet quitting is a new term for an old problem that's been around for a long time. However, I do think that when your star performers start quietly quitting on you, there's a bigger problem at play here. We've always had those people that sort of flew under the radar. They did what they needed to do. They weren't underperforming, so you couldn't get rid of them or reprimand them. But as you said, they didn't have skin in the game where they were going above and beyond. So, and th there's a place for those people. However, when your star performers start going quiet on you, that's a big red flag. It is. So I want to shift forward and talk about this 2006 when you discovered Imago Therapy and you know how it's a complete game changer for you. So let's break it down. First, 
if you could explain to our listeners what it is, how it works, and most importantly, why it put wind in your sails. So it was founded by Harville Hendricks and his wife who are based in the US. And it's really about understanding how our childhood upbringing, particularly the first seven years of a child's life, which is where our emotional foundation is formed. And just as we have physical requirements from a growth and development point of view, so we've got to learn to sit and then stand and crawl and walk and run, we need the same on a psychological level. So things like attachment theory, we need safety and attachment. We learn to express ourselves emotionally. We learn how to trust, how to be vulnerable, how to be affectionate, how to deal with conflict, how to communicate, all of those things, which we learn from our primary caregivers. So in most instances, mother and father, depending on your, your dynamics. And that sets the emotional foundation for how we start interacting and engaging on a relational level. First of all, with our immediate family and then friends. And then as we grow, start growing and evolving in, in our other environments until we come into the workplace and then it's about relationships at the workplace. And we experience what we call childhood wounding. So nothing about parents being bad, but parents are human and they can't meet our every need 100% all of the time, 100% of the time. So there are instances where our emotional needs did not get met for whatever reason. And so as, at, as a young age, we already start modifying and adapting our behavior to get our needs met. So for example, from a, conf from a conflict point of view, we either withdraw and avoid conflict because it's too emotionally intense and we can't deal with it, so we shut down, or we come out and we perceive to be attacking and aggressive, and it's because we're trying to deflect the conflict away from us. So both of them are the same thing, but it's a protective defective mechanism. And when we understand our own behavioral traits and how we are showing up and how we are co-creating the relationships around us, personally or professionally, we start taking ownership and responsibility of our own behavior and we can then co-create healthier attachment, healthier relationships by learning communication skills, conflict management skills, all of those kind of things. And it really helped me understand my upbringing and childhood in terms of the traumatic event of losing my mother and not having emotional safety and, and healthy attachment from a, from a mother's perspective. Because at the same time, my father was emotionally unavailable. So I didn't learn those skills around how to, be, how to connect on an emotional level. I went into survival mode. And it was either fight, flee, or freeze. And I pretty much grew up like that my entire life until I got into my adult relationships. And that's how I behaved in my adult relationships. It was fight, flee, or freeze. I didn't know how to have healthy relationships and healthy attachment until I went to therapy and started processing and learning and understanding what, where it started, what contributed to it, how it's impacting me and my relationships now, and what am I choosing to do differently. And, you know, when I hear you talking, one of the things I did not hear you say, and I want to make sure that the guests understand this, this is not therapy or a path where you blame your parents for everything wrong in the world. And we just, you know, that's my whole problem. What I hear you saying is this is what the environment in which I grew up, this is what it did to me, and this is how I can move forward and become a better version of myself. Is that what I hear you saying? Absolutely correct. It's easy to blame someone else or something else for what's gone wrong in our lives. But by doing that, we're avoiding taking accountability and responsibility for our role and contribution in co-creating that environment. 
And parents are human, right? And invariably, we parent the way we were parented because that's our frame of reference. So it's been passed down generation to generation and all they did was what they were taught how to do unless they did their own work. Yeah, and you know, it makes me think of, <clears throat> you know, the joke is people have these kids and there's no instruction made. <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, and we had our two sons 18 months apart they're now in, uh, gosh, 36 and 34. I'm feeling really old. And they, you know, they grew up in the same house with the same parents, and yet their childhood experiences in the family were completely different. And I think that the older we get, the more we come to realize, you know what? Our parents were doing the best they could with what they had with where they were. Absolutely. And that's a really sort of freeing, freeing thought, don't you think, Paula? Absolutely. At the end of the day, we are all human. We all have flaws. We all have mistakes. We all make mistakes. And I, I like to use the term that we are all perfectly imperfect because there's no such thing as the perfect person or perfect relationship. But how perfect can you be for each other? Because you have, as you say, skin in the game. You're invested in the relationship. So this is more of a leadership question, but when you make this transition from marketing for others to marketing for yourself, your skills, your experiences, your expertise, whatever it is, what lessons from your old career did you carry forward and how did they play out in your new role? I think the marketing st stood me in good stead around having a presence and building a, a profile and being able to uh, clearly articulate and market the types of services and solutions and like any marketing campaign you know what you start out with as the vision or the vision board or the storyboard by the time you get to the end results it's probably shifted a lot and so what I started out with originally back then to where I am now is I've grown and evolved so my approaches have shifted and changed my solutions and packaging have, have shifted and changed as I've grown and evolved and developed more skills and experience and wisdom and failures too you know because failures are there for us to learn from you know, it's funny, I was talking to a lawyer, I was at a conference this past weekend, and we were both talking, the biggest growth we have ever had in our careers came from our biggest failures. You know, when the sun is shining and, the, you know, it's beautiful outside, that's pleasant, it's nice, but I don't know if you really learn anything. No. Um, and I, I think a lot of people are afraid of failure, that whole fear of failure, because we, we internalize it as you are a failure. But where did we learn about failure? At school, right? School taught us mm -hmm. if you didn't pass the year, the term, the test, the assignment, whatever it is, then you have failed and you've got big red F or whatever it is that you got on your school report card. And you took it as you, the person, are a failure. But failure is an event, not a person. So if you failed, so I failed math at school, I was very bad at math. And I had to, it took me a long time to get to grips with it, but it, why did I fail? I didn't understand the work. I didn't ask for help. I had a teacher who made our lives hell in the math classroom. I stopped asking questions and that contributed to me not getting the result I wanted or needed, which was passing my, passing my math exam. So how do you take those insights, that feedback, and apply it going forward to get a different result or a different outcome? There's no such thing as failure, it's only feedback. 
You know, in listening to your TED talk, which we will drop the link in the show notes, um, you know, when people think of relationship expert, I think the first thing that sometimes may pop to mind is, you know, the people who write the Dear Abby column. <laughs> but the information you're working with is quantifiable, and I think that's an important distinction. And in your TED talk, you talk about this number of 150. And that's the number that famed anthropologist Robin Dunbar points out as to the ideal for quality relationships. And in your talk, you address that when this number is butted up against technology, and let's call out our biggest culprit, social media, it can leave us feeling empty. Mm. Can you expound on that a bit? Sure. So, so Dunbar says, if you, once you start going past that, the meaningfulness of those relationships starts diminishing because it starts becoming too, too wide to be now be personal. So you become acquaintances or you become, you know, ad hoc as and when we see you kind of thing. But you don't have real meaningful relationships and connections with those people. And social media definitely is contributing and playing a big role these days because everybody's chasing the likes and the follows and not so much about the engagement that we're having. So you can have an account with a million followers and a million likes and you could have an account with 20 followers and 20 engagements from the, each follower. Which relationship do you think is going to be more richer and rewarding and in, engaging and interactive? Yeah, and they call it the doom scroll. I mean, when people get on social media and it, it really can be depressing because everybody, of course, is living their highlight reels on social media, not the crappy days when you're not talking to your partner or your kids are driving you nuts. Absolutely, and that's why it's not called fake book for nothing, right? <laughs> <laughs> I've not heard that. Uh, there was another talk you gave that I thought was incredibly uh, timely, although you probably didn't know it at the time, called the looming loneliness epidemic. Yes. Uh, which seems sort of eerie to me because my first question is this. It's my belief that if people were lonely before, and there's a difference, as we all know, but between, between being alone and being lonely, mm -hmm. that this pandemic just crushed a lot of people. Definitely, and as you said, the timing was quite ironic because I'd been to the Netherlands and I'd done a talk in the Netherlands and this is where I, I came up with the topic or I was exposed to the topic. So that was October 2019. And I came back and I did a talk on that topic uh, after I'd done a bit of research and found out what the data and the stats really were all about. And the younger generation and the older generation, the elderly, were the most impacted. And then the pandemic hit us and of course mental health became very topical and people being isolated and alone and either living alone or working alone became very topical. And so, so I think one of the plus factors of the pandemic is it's put a spotlight on things that were there that we weren't necessarily paying attention to and we've realized the value and, and the importance of them. So, so mental health is health. Before it was kind of seen as two different things where you've got mental health issues or you've got physical health. But actually, they go hand in hand because you can't have one without the other, right? And Yeah, and I think that, at least from my experience, what happened is a lot of the guardrails or yeah, guardrails that were in place in people's lives were removed. So, for instance, if you worked from home like my wife and I did, there was no fence between the start of the day and the end of the day for work. Mm. And what ended up happening with me was... I mean, I realized I had a real problem when I was going upstairs one morning at 8.15 in the evening, 
And I thought to myself, well, I got done early today. Yeah. Now I had started at six in the morning. We all know that you cannot work for 12 or 14 hours and do good work. Uh-uh. We just, we know you can't. Uh-huh. But there was nothing to start and end the day. Did you, have you dealt with folks or talked with folks that had that same issue? Most definitely. Um, you know, before pande- the pandemic, we, we had a significant symbol that started and ended our day, which was our daily commute. We left home, which signaled the start of our workday. We drove home, which signaled the end of our workday, even if we did work at home. But there was that, that real sort of hard start and stop. Whereas, as you know, your example and so many others, the lines got blurred and they still are blurred for a lot of people. And people are having to really look at that and, and put some, some real boundaries down and, and understand that you need time out, not only to spend with your loved ones, but your mental health and, and to give your brain a break because the neuroscience is telling us so much about the impact of constantly being online or unavailable that it's impacting our brains in so many ways from a memory point of view, a cognitive point of view, our interpersonal skills perspective. It's huge, huge impact. Yeah, I mean, my, my non-scientific analogy is you we have to let our brains cool down. Definitely. In, in whichever way you want to do it, go on a 10 day silent retreat, go on a hike, you know, go hang out by a swimming pool, but no phone, and this is me, no phone, no nothing. Yeah. The constant distractions, so whether it's notifications on our desktops or laptops, notifications on our phones, the distractions around us and behind us, our brain is not wired to be constantly on on and distracted. We can't cope with it, which is why we get the terms such as digital fatigue or fog brain or popcorn brain, because we're not wired for that. We're actually wired for connection, human connection. Yeah, we are built for community. So one of the dangers you warned about was that collaboration without connection and the need for folks to feel like they belong and contribute to a culture. Um, If you're talking to a leader, a business leader, and this subject comes up, what are you you maybe pointing out to them or bringing up to them that they need to keep in the front of their mind as we all struggle with where do we work and how do we work? Do we all work from home? Do we work in the office? Do we have this something called a hybrid, which I still don't know what the hell that means. So what are you telling leaders? I think first of all is that your people are human beings, not human machines. So they have Mm. to have some form of human interaction and human connection. Whether you are doing a hybrid model, so a hybrid model being you can have the flexibility to work some days from home and some days in the office and depending on what your schedule is, because for some it's two days, for some it's three days. But it's being intentional that when your people are in the office, you are participating in people-related interactions. If you're just going to commute to work to sit on your laptop in front of your colleague, well, you might as well do that from home, right? Exactly. That's a good point. So I'm going to do one more pivot before we wrap up, and I want to talk with you about your book, Embracing No. Uh, because the message reminded me a lot of essentialism, the concept of essentialism and the concept of turning things down, of having your no being bigger than your yes. So first question, why do we all have such a hard time in our professional lives saying no? Because a lot of us are people pleasers and we are people pleasers because ultimately at the end of the day, one of our, our biggest basic need as a human being is to be loved and be accepted. 
And so we're afraid to say no because we're afraid of being rejected or abandoned and not being loved for our no. And so, and you bring up a good point, and I'm sure this came out uh, in Imago Therapy. If you have, from a young age, a fear of abandonment, which I did, that if you, you know, your brain thinks if I, if Paula comes to me and says, Mike, I've got this great project uh, that I want you to help me on. And in the back of and my, part of my brain says, I would rather eat broken glass than do that. But then part of my brain says, but you know, Paula's a good friend and she's been a good source of business or we collaborate a lot. And if I say no, she'll be mad, right? When the truth is, Nobody really, I hate to say, nobody really cares. I mean, if I say no to you, it's not like your day's ruined. Am I right? Absolutely. And that's one of the, you know, the examples that I use is that we're so quick to accept other people's no's, but we feel we have to justify our own no when we say no. I know. And people, you know, I will have people say to me, hey, listen, uh, I'll reach out to people. I'd like your help on this. Will you do this with me, Mike? I'd love to, but man, I just can't give you the time right now to do a good job. And I have respect for them. I'm like, good for you, Paula. Good for you to say no and thank you. Because the last thing I want you to do is say yes, then hate the job, and then it's miserable for both of us. But you're so right. In our world, we think, if I tell Paula no, she'll never call me again, which is just not true. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's where the book came from is because I put my hand up. I was a people pleaser and I found it difficult to say no and I felt guilty until I did the work and, and I realized that no is a full sentence. No, period. <laughs> there we go. Just like there's another full sentence in relationships. I'm sorry. Yes. Period. Yes, definitely. <laughs> it, it's where the butt gets you. The butt gets you in uh, trouble. So, <laughs> all the time. So, Paula, if folks want to reach out to you and want to learn more about you, what is the best way for them to do so? I'm on all the social media platforms. So you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Twitter. And, of course, my website is paulaquincy.com. So um, as we wrap up, if we've got something, somebody listening to the program today and they're thinking, you know what? I'm just I'm struggling with with getting this balance in my work life and my personal life with always saying yes because I think I need to but then I end up with bitter beer face uh, what are a couple of observations or recommendations or encouragements you could give to those folks me included I think first of all know what your value system is or what your values are because your values help you understand what is of value or importance to you or what your priority is. And when something knocks against that and it doesn't feel right to listen to that and pay attention and that it's okay to say no because when you start living your truth, when you start being true to self and, and being bringing your true self to the place, you are a much better person for it and with other people around you as opposed to someone who is inauthentic, because we can pick that up straight away. We, we, we know when someone's not being real, genuine, and sincere. You know, it's so paradoxical that if we make self-care a priority, it actually helps everybody in our life world. Definitely, because people feel you, they see you, they hear you, and they know where they stand with you, and vice versa. 
Paula Quincy, thank you so much for being on the program today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me as a guest all the way from South Africa. Yes, this is Mike Bassett with Legal Grounds. Be easy, everybody. Legal Grounds was written, recorded, and produced by Dust Devil Press. To learn more about today's guest, and for links to the topics and materials discussed, please check out our show notes. For more information on Mike Bassett, visit thebassettfirm.com. Questions, topic ideas, and guest suggestions can be emailed to legalgrounds at thebassettfirm.com. 